I watched with great interest this summer, as did, is that my mic that's doing that? If it is, I'll turn it off and we'll go another route. Guys, is that, is that my mic doing that? It is? Sorry. We'll go this route. How's that? Last summer, the world sort of watched as a baby was about to arrive. Prince William and his bride, Kate, were expecting their firstborn. It was quite a scene. As all through the end of June and the 1st of July, all of the press camped out across the street from the hospital hoping to get the first report of Kate's showing up to give birth to their firstborn. Finally, on July 22nd, 4.24 in the afternoon, Kate and William welcomed their very first a son, And they named him George. Prince George had arrived. Front pages of papers around the world the next morning said this, It's a boy. It's amazing how much interest there was about a royal family giving birth to a son. But church, what we're about to read is about as big a contrast as you could find anywhere in the world. For as the Son of God made His entrance into this world, He came without fanfare, without hoopla, without on-the-spot reporters, without a lot of coverage, without any announcement. Here, the, the Son of God arrived in a little tiny hamlet in the corner of the Roman Empire that most Romans hadn't even heard of. And the Son of God came. And the story of His coming, Luke gives us a blow-by-blow, Luke 2, verse 1. In those days, Which days, Luke? What what days are we talking about, Luke? Well, in those days when God was doing miraculous things among Zechariah and Elizabeth in those days. In those days when God dispatched an angel to a a little tiny town called Nazareth and said to a a 14, 15-year-old young maiden who was a Jewess, You're going to give birth to the Son of God in those days. In those days when she went to visit her cousin Elizabeth and walked in the room, the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaped for joy when Mary came in because the baby in her womb was the Son of God. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Caesar Augustus, the son of Julius Caesar, took Rome to its pinnacle of power and wealth and influence, took it to its zenith 
in architecture and literature of the history of the Roman Empire. Caesar Augustus was so amazingly influential that Parliament declared him a god. A god. They erected monuments all over the empire and people had to come and burn incense and say, Caesar is Lord. Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken. There were two reasons for a census. One, there was a military reason. They needed to know how many men were available in the Roman Empire that could be available for military service. And the other was a tax reason. They wanted a census of their entire Roman world so that they could get more tax money. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. The rule was you had to go to your own place of of heritage. So the Bible says, verse 4, Joseph also went up from a town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. I want you to notice it says going up to Bethlehem from Nazareth. Now, if you look at a map, we would say he went where? Down. But you see, in the Bible, when it talks about up and down, it's not talking about position on a map. It's talking about topography. Nazareth is about 1,400 feet in elevation. Bethlehem, about 2,600. And so when the Bible says he went up, it's talking about he went up topographically. He went up in elevation to Bethlehem. He went there because he was of the line of David and Bethlehem was called the town of David. He went there to register with Mary who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, Mary has made an excruciating trip with her husband. A trip of about 70 miles. Now, church, they didn't get in their nice Buick and drive on a superhighway from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Just about all the movies you see, you see Mary riding on the back of a donkey. Amen? Show me the donkey. Show me the donkey. You see, it's not in there. Maybe, maybe Joseph had a donkey. Probably not. Maybe Joseph borrowed a donkey for her to ride on. Probably not. Maybe Mary rode in the back of a wagon, but more than likely Mary walked 70 miles across rugged terrain. Ladies, Those of you who've given birth to a child, can you imagine walking 70 miles across rugged terrain over the course of a handful of days? Nine months pregnant, can you imagine how she felt? Back 
aching, feet swollen, head hurting, uncomfortable beyond description. She gets there to Bethlehem. Can you imagine the fatigue she felt? Abraham Lincoln, in the midst of the Civil War, left Washington for a few days to check on the troops. After he got back, one of his staff members said to him, Mr. President, wasn't it good just to get out of town for a few days and just kind of get away from the, from the rush and everything of Washington? And Lincoln sighed very heavily and looked at his staff member and said, Listen, nothing touches the tired spot. And that's Mary. Nothing touches the tired spot. And this 14, 15-year-old young lady is about to give birth to her firstborn, and she has walked 70 miles to be with her husband. The Bible says, while she was there, the time came for the baby to be born And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloths. Let me me say what this word means. This is a word that describes dust cloths. She wrapped him in the first century equivalent of dust cloths. and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. You probably never heard the name Wally Perling. Wally was 10 years old. He was playing the innkeeper in the church play at Christmas. He had one line. His line was, we don't have any rooms here. That was his line. The night of the play, the church building was packed, and they were doing their Christmas play. And Wally got caught up in the emotion of the moment. And as Mary and Joseph come in and ask for a room, Wally says his line with perfection, we don't have any rooms here. But as the the little boy and girl that were playing Joseph and Mary as their shoulders kind of slumped and they turned and looked at each other sadly and started to walk away. Wally got caught up in the emotion of the moment and his tears started to fill his eyes. Wally said, wait, you can have my room. That didn't happen that night so long ago. You would think that as God pulled together all of the pieces of history to make this work in exactly the way he had prophesied it, that God could have reserved a room at the Bethlehem Hilton. But again, God did not spare his son from any inconvenience so that no one could accuse him of favoritism. She gave birth to a son. I thought about Joseph so often. What do you you think Joseph is feeling that night as he looks down on that little baby wrapped in dust cloths and lying in a feed trough for animals? You ever think that maybe 
the thought crossed his mind, God, God, this isn't how I hoped that it was going to happen. God, not like this. We don't know if it was a stable. We don't know if it was a barn. We don't know if it was a cave. If you go to, to Bethlehem and visit the, the traditional place of his birth, they'll show you a place that they say was an opening in the rock, a cave, that that was the traditional place. But we don't know exactly the spot where he was born. And, 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 and Joseph walking around pacing as he sees the surroundings, did he ever ask himself the question, oh, God, God, why didn't I do better than this? He deserved better than this. And so did she. Luke continues, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. The temple sheep were kept outside Bethlehem. The temple sheep. These are the sheep that were taken to the temple and offered in sacrifice. Now, we don't know for sure if these shepherds were taking care of the temple sheep, but in all likelihood they were. And if that's the case, then even in his birth, Jesus is pointing to his death. For he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Bible says, An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the, of the Lord shone around them, and they were joy-filled. Is that what it says? What does it say? And they were I told you about my pet peeve last week, all right? I told you about my pet peeve. People who portray angels are not reading the same Bible I'm reading. These gritty outdoorsmen whose life was to protect their flocks, these guys who were used to predators coming in and stealing from their flock and protecting them, putting their life on the line, whenever an angel shows up and the glory of the Lord shones around them, shines around them, the Bible says they were what? Terrified. Four times in the narrative, an angel shows up. Four times. And the response is exactly the same every time. The angel appears in the temple to a gritty old priest named Zechariah. One of the first things the angel says to him is what? Don't be afraid. He comes to the maiden in Nazareth named Mary and he says to her, you're going to give birth to a son. He's going to be the son of God. Well, one of the first things he says to her is what? Don't be afraid. He appears to Joseph in a dream. And the first thing he says to Joseph is, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. And now, and on the night of his birth, the angel appears to shepherds in the fields watching over their flocks at night, and they're terrified. And one of the first things the angel says is what? Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For today, in, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is 
Christ the Lord. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is the one that we've been waiting for. He is the one who was prophesied hundreds of years ago. He's born tonight. And this will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger, feed trough. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared. Now, when the Bible says a great company, what does it mean? It means a great company. There was one angel, and the glory of the Lord is shining all over these shepherds, and now all of a sudden the sky explodes with angels. Remember, Jesus said he could have called 10,000, or he could have called legions of angels to rescue him from that hour. I don't know how many showed up, but when the Bible says a great company, it means a great company. The sky explodes with light, the Shekinah glory of God, and, and they... They start praising God and singing Gloria in excelsis Deo. That's the Latin translation of the first line, glory to God in the highest. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Can you imagine the stillness of that night listening to the glory of angels sing? Whoo, baby. If we have instant replay in heaven, I want to see that one. Verse 16. So they sauntered off. Is that what it says? So they what? They hurried off. Listen, wherever you read, you see there is urgency for people to get to the king. They hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, think about it. When they had seen him, him. I mean, how could you take it in? It'd be like trying to, to catch Niagara Falls in a teacup or to drink the Pacific Ocean dry with a straw. I mean, when they had seen him, these shepherds looked into the face of God for the first time. When they had seen him, They spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds shepherds said to them. Listen, our job, folks, is to do what these shepherds did. Our job is to spread the news of great joy to those around us. Our job is to tell the story that the king that we had waited for has come. There is good news of great joy this morning, 2013, Allen, Texas. A Savior is born who is Christ the Lord. 
But Mary treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen. Listen, listen. Which were just as they had been told, God is in the habit of telling the truth. Two or three things I want us to pay some attention to out of this story. Okay? Here's the first. The uninvited are the first to be invited to see the king. You say, well, what do you mean by that, preacher? Well, let me, let me tell you that in this day and time when Jesus was born, in their culture at that particular moment in history, the uninvited were shepherds. The Pharisees said there are six professions that are unworthy, and one of those six professions was a shepherd. It hadn't always been that way in Israel's history. But shepherds were now considered unclean. They couldn't go in the synagogue. They couldn't go in the temple because of the nature of their work. They were considered outcasts. They were the uninvited. Whenever you had your weddings and you sent out your invitations, they typically didn't invite the shepherds. Little boys didn't tell their daddies, I want to grow up and be a shepherd when I'm grown. And these guys who had been relegated to the back row of society are invited to have a front row seat to see the king. I don't know about you people, but that is really, really encouraging to me. Because I don't, I don't know how you've been told through your life that you're not worthy, that, that God has nothing to do with you, that you're so far removed from God, that your sin is, has separated you from God so far, that, that God has nothing to do, that God can't you Listen, listen. If God invites the shepherds to come and see the king, God invites you. And no matter who has told you throughout your life you're not worthy, no matter if it was a parent or a, or a peer group or, or a coach or a teacher, and, and someone has made you to feel that you're so far from God, you could never be included in one of God's own. Listen, if God invites the shepherds who had a back row in society and now they have a front row seat to see the king, God invites you. You're included. The uninvited are the first invited to see the king. Here's a second. Caesar does not have the last word. God does. Caesar does not have the last word. God does. Listen, you can go to the library. You can read this right out of the library books. You can can go to the Allen Library tomorrow and read this stuff right out of the history books. Rome ruled the world, and Caesar ruled Rome. 
And Caesar Augustus was the one they called a God. And people would go and offer incense and say, Caesar is Lord. Rome ruled by power and might and oppression. They crucified people, according to Josephus, just for their own amusement. We go to a movie. We go to a a museum. We we turn on a television for our amusement. They crucified people. They conquered in order to enrich themselves. Sepphoris was a Roman general who crucified 2,000 men three miles from Nazareth when Jesus was a teenager. A group of Jews had revolted, and so to teach them a lesson, Sepphoris comes in and crucified 2,000 men less than three miles from Jesus' house when he was a teenage boy. You think maybe Jesus could have possibly seen that unbelievable scene of 2,000 men hung on trees and have his heart turn over at the, at the thought that that day was going to come for him. But I'm here to tell you this morning, Caesar died, and so did his kingdom. And the kingdom of Jesus is still alive and well and growing this morning. And Luke kind of puts them in opposition to one another. You can choose Caesar against Jesus. You can choose Jesus. You can choose Caesar. You can take the way of the world and the way the world offered, operates and the way the world rewards, or you can choose Jesus. The Caesars died, every single one of them. And the kingdom that they ruled has has dissolved into nothingness. Marcia and I have been to Rome. And let me tell you something. Caesar ain't there anymore. But Jesus is seated on the throne and reigns this morning. You can choose Caesar and the way of the world, or you can choose Jesus. You can choose Caesar and die. You can choose Jesus and live. The choice is yours. As for me and my house, I choose Jesus. Listen, Caesar doesn't have the last word. Jesus does. Cancer doesn't have the last word. Jesus does. Death doesn't have the last word. Jesus does. Heart disease doesn't have the final word. Jesus does. Heartache, heartbreak, betrayal, difficulty, pain doesn't have the last word. Jesus does. And this time of year is time for us to remind ourselves and one another he has the last word in all things. Choose him and live. Here's the final thing we're done, all right? The last thing that I always come to in this story is that he came to give us hope. Listen, hope was born that night in Bethlehem. Hope. Hope was born. A hope that can sustain you through anything in this life. A hope that can see you through pain. A hope that can see you through disappointment. A hope that can see you through a a terminal terminal illness. Uh, A hope that can see you through death itself. 
Hope was born that night. One of the saddest phrases to me in the whole Bible is found in Ephesians 2. And it describes us before Christ. You know what it says about us? We were without hope and without God in the world. But now he's come. And beating in every one of our hearts who follow Jesus is a hope that will not be denied. Her name is Helga Schmidt. Does that sound German? <laughs> Helga Schmidt. She writes a brief article that it was four days before Christmas. She was in a big department store, hating being there, doing her last-minute shopping, filling up the cart, putting stuff in it for people that she knew her, their feelings would be hurt if she didn't get them something. And she had a bad attitude about being there. She said her back was hurting, her feet were hurting, her head was hurting. She got up to the checkout stand. She picked the one she thought was going to be the shortest one, and she estimated she'd be there at least 30 minutes. She ended up in line behind a little boy and a little girl. She estimated the little boy to be about five or six. She described him as being in tattered tennis shoes. And she said, obviously, his blue jeans he'd outgrown a couple of years earlier that they hit him two or three inches above the ankle. He had on a, a coat that was worn out, and he had in his grimy little hands a bunch of wadded-up $1 bills. His little sister that Helga Schmidt estimated to be about a year older than, I mean, younger than he was, he, she estimated her to be four, five. Said there she was, and they were playing Christmas songs through the PA system, and she was humming along with the Christmas songs, kind of off-key, and her hair she said it probably hadn't had a brush through it in, in, in a while. She said it was just a mat of curls. And she had the remains of lunch on her face. But she just seemed so joyful, and she had in her hands a pair of house slippers that had a, had a golden finish on them that shined. They waited for 30 minutes, and they finally got up to the checkout counter. This little girl puts this, this package of these two house shoes up on the counter, and the little boy dumps his handful of dollar crumpled dollar bills up on the counter. And as it turned out, he's $3 short. And very kindly, the checkout lady tries to explain to him, sweetheart, you don't have enough money. And with that, she starts crying, the little girl. And the big brother kind of puts his arm around her and tries to comfort her and say, it'll be okay, we'll, we'll come back tomorrow. We'll try to get some more money and we'll come back tomorrow. And Helga Smith said she broke open her purse and she kind of caught the, the checker's eye and she pitched $3 up on the counter. And suddenly four arms went around her. She said in the course of this little girl's crying, she had said, but Jesus would love mommy in those beautiful gold slippers. Jesus would love mommy in those gold slippers. And so when they hugged her, Helga kind of knelt down and she said, sweetheart, what did you mean your mommy is going to look beautiful in those golden slippers when she meets Jesus? And the little boy spoke first and said, daddy says 
that our mommy is really sick and he's, she's going to go see Jesus before Christmas. And the little girl says, my Sunday school teacher taught me that in heaven they have streets of gold. And so I bought these gold slippers. Don't you think my mommy will look beautiful in these gold slippers? Jesus is going to love her in these slippers. Helga Smith said she, with tears rolling down her face, embraced those two little ones because they had reminded her what this season is about. That no matter what you face, no matter how difficult it might be, hope was born in Bethlehem, and his name is Jesus. I bring you good news of great joy. A Savior has been born who is Christ the Lord. Choose him and live. Let's pray together. God, would you forgive us that in the busyness of our lives, in the busyness of our commitments in pursuing trivial things, that somehow, especially this season of the year, we overlook the fact that good news of great joy has been told us God, I pray that you'll remind us this morning that Caesar doesn't have the last word, that Jesus does. Though no matter who has relegated us through our lives to the back row, he's invited us to have a front row seat to be a part of his kingdom. God, I pray for those this morning that are in pain and difficulty And I pray that your hope might beat within their breast this morning in ways that maybe it hasn't for a while. God, thank you for the hope that's found in Jesus. And I pray that that hope might radiate out from all of our lives as we leave this place, that others might see we have chosen Jesus and we have chosen life. And I pray it in his majestic name. And the whole church said, Amen. We're going to